How are we doing tonight? Everyone's good? Full? Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to continue our series on how God makes men. Uh, what? Oh, I did that in the beginning. Yeah. That's good. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, but we, we did continue the series, how God, made, how God Makes Men. Uh, from a book uh, that's probably mentioned, I know Bruce probably mentioned as well, a great book to get. Uh, but we're going to look today at the principle of correction. Correction. We have been corrected in our lives so many times, right? From the time that we're born with our parents, maybe teachers, coaches. Uh, even as we go into adulthood, we even have our bosses. Uh, I was talking to my dad and he says, Man, I thought when I was going to get married, the correction would be over, but my wife corrects me as well. So it's like you never run away from the moment of being corrected, uh, whether it be, again, at your job with, with your boss, but also in our relationship with the Lord, we're also being corrected by God, right? Because we are humans that think we know best, that we think we know our lives better than anybody else, even better than God. And there's moments in our lives that we need to be corrected. And God corrects us to help us, sometimes even to help us before we destroy ourselves, to protect us. Uh, my parents were here last week and we were just talking about, a lot about my childhood. I don't know why, but we always like, they're talking to my kids and to my wife. And they were talking about how I was so angry that I had a curfew. When I was growing up, I was the only one in my friend group that had a curfew. So if you understand that, or maybe a parent that gave curfew to your kids, you probably understand the result from that. But I remember being so angry at my parents because I was the only one, when I had a driver's license, I had to be, at the weekdays, I had to be home by 10. Then on the weekends, I had to be home by midnight. And I just hated it because I was the only one with my friend group that had to go home at 10. I'm like, oh, it's so embarrassing. Like I go on any life. But I remember one moment that really woke me up and understood why my parents put that, that rule in my life. You see, I thought my parents were like a vacuum trying to suck the fun away from my life. I'm like, what? They're just, they're old. They don't even know how to have fun. Like, oh. But I remember one night I was sleeping. It was after a football game, Friday night. And the rule was even the game used to go a little later. So it's, hey, right after the game, you can't go anywhere. You have to come back home. That was the rule. So I did, a little angry, but I did. I went to bed. Then around one o'clock in the morning, I got a phone call from a friend. And I said, hey, man, have you heard? And I said, man, I've been sleeping. I don't know, what am I supposed to hear? And he was like, there's been a car wreck. And one of our friends, our classmate, it was in the car and believed to be dead. And three other of our classmates as well in this car. And so I was like, well, yeah, everybody, he said, everybody's in the school. Um, everybody's going to school to talk about it. Just encourage each other, like, come to school, man. So I remember my sister taking me, and as, as we're driving, we drove by the accident, and I see this car engulfed in fire. And come to find out, the four girls that were in, my classmates that were in that car, all passed away. And there's a crazy story that they were after the, the game, they went home and changed, because they were cheerleaders, went home to change, they were going to a party. Again, it was about 12.30, 1 o'clock, right? And they were going to a party, and as they were pulling out, one of the girls lived in the main... Their house was by a major highway, and as they were pulling out, a car who was drag racing and drunk came and hit them. And the crazy story is, the man in that car, his sister was in the car with the other girls. And so it was a big tragedy in our community. But I remember being at the school, everyone was crying, we were praying, we were, you know, consulting everybody. But I remember thinking, my parents are smart, because nothing good happens after midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight. 
But sometimes we're like that with God where, and there's people who believe that God is a vacuum, doesn't want to suck the fun, wants to kill all the fun with all these rules. But in reality, he's trying to protect us from destroying ourselves. And so tonight we're going to look at the principle of correction and we're going to look at the life of David. You see, a lot of times we need correction because of sin. Sin Man, makes us stupid. <laughs> sin makes us do dumb mistakes and blinds us. You see, sin takes place in a specific time and specific ways that just sneaks and, man, we fall into it and blinds us on the things that God has for us. It blinds us to know the greatness of who God is and how he wants to live our life. And the example we're going to look at, at this principle of correction is David. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. A familiar story of the life of David. And if you know the life of David, you know he was blessed. We see in the book of Acts as well, he's known as a man after God's own heart. We see as a boy, he defeated Goliath through the help of the Lord. He becomes king, a powerful king, uh, a great warrior. He, he had a lot of victories. And here... In 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David's a little older of age, a little wiser of age, that's what I call it. Not old, wiser in age. And decides to do something that he shouldn't have done. And this allows sin to kind of affect his life. So read with me. Here we're going to read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, 1 through 5. It says, In the spring, when the kings march out to war... David sent Joab with his officers in all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, let's stop right there. There was a mistake. If you see the beginning of that verse, it says, In the spring, when kings marched to war, David stayed back. So it's kind of funny. I was reading up on this. Like, you know how we have baseball season, basketball season, football season. Back in this time, there was war season. All right, so there was a time where war was, this is the season right here, and it was the springtime because there was no, the rain, was, rain season was gone, so there was no mud. Chariots could go anywhere, horses go anywhere. So the springtime was war season. So this is what everybody was preparing for for the off season, was preparing for, preparing for the war season, and they were going out. But David decided, you know what? I've won so many wars already. I need to take a break. I'm going to send someone else. I'm going to send my guys out there. I trust them. I train them. They're good. I'm going to stay back. And that was mistake number one, that he did not do what he was supposed to do as a king, as a protector of God's people, right? As a shepherd, which he knew because he was a shepherd, was to protect and be in front of this battle, this war. But he decided to stay back because he wanted to rest. He wanted to kind of be a little lazy on that. But here comes the problem, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her. And when she came came to him, he slept with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleansiness. Afterward, she returned home. Verse 5, the woman 
conceived and sent word, informed David, I am pregnant. There's a pastor that says that the way he describes sin and the fall of sin is in four steps. Number one, there's a thought. Then it becomes something that forms into an idea that becomes a fascination that then becomes the fall. And this is what happened to David. That he had planted this idea, this in his mind, that he was strolling on top of the roof where he can see everything. And it says that he saw a woman bathing. But nowhere after that do you see David ran away. What happened? It says that she was very beautiful. That means that he was looking a little longer than he should have. And he stayed. And that was the thought that was planned in his mind. That formed into an idea that we so fascinated and so fixed on it of how to see how the idea could come into practice that then made him fall into sin. And that's what sin does. Sin blinds us from what we're supposed to do, what God has called us to do. So the first thing here, verses one through five, what we see here is that David falls into sin. He falls into sin. Now here are a couple of things, thoughts about, I mean, how did he get to this point? The first thing is this, that David's blessing made him forget how much he needed the Lord. Now at this time, life was good for King David. Life was really good. The kingdom was established. Everybody loved him. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, David just came from being victorious of this battle, all bunch of battles. So life was going good. He was king. He was all good. But here's the thing. Sometimes when life is going good, we forget of the one who's in control of our lives. You see, life was going good for David. Like if David had stocks, everything would be up and good. Like he had everything he wanted. But that's how we are sometimes. When life is going good, when we get the house that we wanted, the cars that we wanted, when there's money in the bank or retirement looks good, or the house that we got, the job that we got, that life is going good, that sometimes we don't go pursuing the Lord, but we think this is all because of my strength. This is all because of me. And this is kind of the attitude David had. That he was, all this blessing that he was getting from the Lord, he forgot where he got the blessing. And so he forgot how he needed the Lord. Secondly, this is David was disengaged with his purpose. Now remember, he was king. And the kings were supposed to go into battle. This is war season. This is what they've been working for all the off season to have this battle. And he was supposed to go and fight and protect God's people, but he disengaged himself from his purpose. He disengaged himself. At the time of year when kings were supposed to go out to battle, David stayed back home. You see, instead of David the warrior, it was David the vacationer. David was on vacation. He was relaxing, hanging out, not worrying about anything. But he was disengaged from his purpose. See, it's the way to resist the things of this world, the temptations of this world, is not by having a strong will of saying no, but it's understanding your purpose. And we as men got to understand what is our purpose. And we see this in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. We see Jesus as he's risen from the grave and ascending to heaven. He gives his disciples, even us as well, the last command, the last purpose. And he says, go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, and teach them all that you have observed of me, and I'll be with you to the end of age. This is the purpose of a Christian, is to know God and to make him known as we live our lives. That as we're growing in God's word, hopefully that's why you're here. 
that you're here so you can know more about God, how great God is, so that you can learn how to study God's word yourself. But the goal is this, not keep this information to yourself, but to give it to someone else who needs it. That is our purpose. As well, if you're married, to be a godly father to your children, a godly husband to your wife. We see that in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. We see Paul said that the husband represents Christ as Christ loved the church and sacrifices. So there's a husband as well. So we all have a purpose in our lives. And as believers and men of God, our purpose is to know God and make him known as we live our lives. But some of us, sometimes we disengage from that purpose. We kind of decide, say, you know what? I don't got time to tell people about Jesus or help people about Jesus. I'm just going to come comfortably here, eat my meal, hear about Jesus, and that's it. And disengage from my, the full purpose that God has for my life. You see, many people live their lives so empty and so pointless that their hunger is trying to find something to fulfill this emptiness inside their life. They think what can fulfill the emptiness in their life is a relationship or material things. But we all know what can really fulfill our lives is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we've got to know this purpose. But here's the big thing is this. Being bored can lead us to sin. Listen, look at, read with me here, David. I said here, it says, Verse two, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. To me, that sounds like he was bored. That he's like, oh, I'm just laying here on vacation. Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go and walk around. But if David was where he's supposed to be in the battle, far away from the rooftop, far away from seeing Bathsheba, he probably wouldn't fall into sin that he fell into. But the problem was he was disengaged from his purpose. He was disengaged from what he was called to do. You see, God created us to engage in battle. God created us to pursue his ministry with passion, with desire, and not giving up. See, God did not create us to be lazy, to be bored, but to understand our purpose as a child of God, as a man of God, to know him and to make him known. God did not call us to be in the sidelines, but he called us to carry his vision, his desire. And only the vision of what God wants you to do will give you the sense of purpose and the strong desire to do what God wants you to do. You see, when we get bored, that's when sin comes in. But when we're bored, not doing what we're supposed to do, that's when sin uses that to disengage us from our purpose. And that's what happened to David. That's what happened to him. Because he, was not, he, wasn't, he wasn't where he's supposed to be. And because of that, he strolled on the roof and fell into temptation. And then because he was bored, because he was disengaged with his purpose, David was in the wrong place, right? He was in the wrong place. He couldn't sleep, he was bored, got up, walked around the rooftop, saw Bathsheba. But again, nowhere in scripture to say that he saw and ran. He saw and stood and looked longer than he should have. And it's interesting to see the difference between him and Joseph, right? We know the life of Joseph, sold by his brothers to Egypt, becomes uh, Potiphar's helper. But then we see Potiphar's wife wanted to get with Joseph. Now, Joseph didn't stay, didn't stand and look at Potiphar's wife. What did he do? He fled. He ran. He ran away as far. Someone asked me, hey, how do you fight temptation? How do you fight a way not to fall? He says, run away from it. 
Run away from sin, don't even look back, because that's what Joseph did. But David did the opposite. David stood and looked longer than he should have. You see, David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. David put himself in a place where he could have been tempted. But we see that David had an opportunity to escape this temptation. There's an opportunity here we see in verse 3 that David sent someone to know more about who this woman was. He said, who is this woman? And they said, hey, that this is Elam's daughter and this is Uriah's wife. So here is a moment. And it, I kind of sense this, if it's a servant, kind of saying, David, I know what you're thinking, man. David, don't do it. She's a daughter and she's married. Now for us, we kind of see this, that Bathsheba is not like an object. She's actually a real person. She's a daughter of someone. And she's, a, and she's a wife as well. Now we see that, but you, you know who didn't see that? David. David was still looking too long to Bathsheba that he didn't care about that she was a daughter and that she was a wife. And so we see that David forgot these details. He didn't understand that. And he made Bathsheba his object that he wanted. You see, sin starts with a thought, a plan that move, that forms us to making ideas that we're so fixed on that it makes us want to fall, that makes us fall. And that's what was happening to David, that he was so fixed in this, in, in, in Bathsheba, he started planning and he went through this plan and what happened? He fell. He fell into sin. You see, God does not want to keep us from sinning because he wants to kill our fun. Kind of like I'm talking about my parents. I thought my parents wanted to kill my fun. I thought my parents were a vacuum trying to suck the fun out of my life. And sometimes we're like that with God that we think, and there's some people who, even unbelievers, who say, man, God is a God of rules. That he wants to just not make us want to live. But here's the thing. God wants to keep us from sinning because he knows how it deeply hurts us. Because sin hurts us. It hurts us deeply. But the interesting point here. We see in verse 4, actually, yeah, verse 4, we see that David sent the messenger to, to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Afterward, she returned home. So Bathsheba had been purifying herself. And this is part of the Levitical law to purify, to be clean before God. So in a sense, Bathsheba and David were trying to ignore what they did, the adulterous sin that they did, by having religious motives, by going through religious traditions. But aren't we like that sometimes? That when we are in the midst of sin, unconfessed sin, we try to cover it by going to men's study on Thursday. Right? Unconfessed sin in our lives. We try to go to church and kind of cover it. Say, okay, I'm good. I said a couple of prayers. I read a couple of verses. I some songs. Said one amen, I'm good. We try to read God's word to cover that. We try to use these religious traditions to cover the unconfessed sin that's destroying our lives. And that's what Bathsheba and David did, trying to ignore it, this sin. So we see that David falls into sin. But the thing about sin, again, sin starts with a thought that, that forms into an idea that we are so fixed on that we live it out that we fall into that sin. And that's what David did. That he was found the sin, but the problem is this, that David cover, tries to cover up his sin. Instead of confessing it to the Lord, 
He tries to cover up his sin. Here in verse uh, six, it said that David sent orders to Joab and said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And, we have a, and so we see David say, okay, I got to fix this problem. I've got to fix this problem. So I'm going to have Uriah come to me. And, we're gonna, and, and as he's doing this, David plans a series, a series of ways to cover his sin. Now, again, instead of running to God and asking for forgiveness, what does he do? Tries to cover it. Tries to cover it with three plans. Plan A was this. Plan A, he invites you to come back from the battle. Kind of say, hey, how's the battle going? How's everything going? Going good? Okay, awesome. Well, you're right. Here's the thing, man. Why don't you just go home? Go home, go to your wife, say hi, do your thing, and then you're good, right? And so, but Uriah is such a noble man that you know what he does? He sleeps with the guards of the, uh, of the palace and sleeps with them. So plan A did not work. So, but guess what? David doesn't quit. So he does a plan B. So how can I cover this sin? So he does plan B. Now, plan B has no difference. The only difference of plan B is this. We see in verses uh, 12 and 13 is that David tries to get, David gets Uriah drunk. He says, I'm going to get him drunk. But we see that Uriah gets so close to his house, but he, falls, he sleeps with his servants. and falls in the pasture and just passes out. Like Uriah was so close to being home, and David was so close to be, man, for covering up his sin. But plan C didn't work. But this is the crazy part. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't, didn't work. Did that stop David? Did he say, hey, you know what? I'm just going to give this to the Lord, to ask for forgiveness through this. No, it moved them to do the most evil plan ever. And that's to get Uriah killed. But he sends a letter out. He tells his, his office general, said, hey, put your eye in the, in the, right in the front of the lines and everybody pull back. And that's what just happened. And you see plan C actually work. And your eye dies. And we see the end of chapter 12 that David has Bathsheba as his wife and they have a child together. But one of the most chilling verses, one of the most scariest verses is this. The end of chapter 12. Uh, 11, at the end of verse 27, it says this. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. David said, man, I got it. I'm all good. She's my wife now. We got a kid. It's all good. Nothing's going to happen here. But one thing he forgets, that God is always watching. That's what it is with sin. Sin makes us think that, okay, as long as I'm covering this, that no one knows about it, I am good. But the scripture says this, that that we hold in darkness, the light will shine through. That God is going to reveal that. That God is always watching. We forget that. That's what sin does. Sin makes us forget how great our God is. That we can hide this sin so well. No one knows about it, but God does. And that was David. David was trying to cover up his sin and doing all these evil bad, but man, it's so evil that he's willing to kill somebody to cover his sin. But we see that God was not happy. And I was thinking about this, this thought came to mind is this, that sin does not just affect us, 
but also those around us. Sin does not just affect us, but also those around us as well. And we're going to see a little later how this sin didn't just affect David, but affected his family and those around him as well. So we see that David falls into sin, and we see that David tries to cover up his sin. Again, that's the process of sin and falling into sin, that it starts with a, a thought that moves, that forms into a plan a plan that we, we live out that then makes us fall into sin and go deeper and deeper and darker and darker thoughts. And we see that in the life of David. That plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. And plan C is the most evil plan that you can think of to take someone's life. But sin blinds us. And sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us make dumb mistakes. But that's why we as believers should repent of our sins so that sin does not carry us even darker places. But we see here that David finally confesses his sin to the Lord. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Now here's the thing, from chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11 to 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a year difference there. So that means for a year, David did not confess his sin. For a year, David thought, I am good. Life is okay. But in reality, David was actually dying inside. How do we know that? If you look at Psalms 32, it's one of the Psalms that David wrote after he confesses his sin and and God exposes his sin. But verse 30, uh, Psalms 32 Verse 3 says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my, though my groaning all day long. So even though that whole year no one knew about this incident, he was dying inside. He said that his bones ached because he was not confessing this sin. And so David was not going to God. So God came to David. And we see this a year later. After this incident, after this sin, a year later, we see in verse 12, verse 1, it says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. In the sense, God's mercy showed up. But before we see this mercy, God's got to expose our sin in our lives. And so the prophet Nathan not comes to David and says, Hey, I want to tell you a story about a rich man stealing from a poor man. And it says that David gets angry. He gets mad. And it's interesting that at that point, he doesn't even get the the whole story that it's about him. Because here we see in verse 7, in chapter 12, Nathan replied to David, you are this man. So after Nathan said, hey, there's a rich man stealing from a poor man, you know what King David said? He said, kill that rich man. He must die for stealing from a poor man. And must even give him more from what, he, from what he stole. Isn't that interesting? But Nathan says, you are that man. I, I kind of wish I could see David's face. His reaction to that. As Nathan said, you are the rich man that stole from the poor man. And goes on and says, you are this man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I rescued you from Saul. 
I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword that took, the light, that took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despise me. Took the wife, Uriah the Hittite, to be your own, your own wife. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own fam- to your own family. I will take your wives and give them to others, to other before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in the broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. Listen, if that doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. But we see here for a year. David did not confess to the Lord, was not going to the Lord, even though we see in Psalms 32, verse 3, that his bones ached. He was in agony because of his unconfessed sin, but he still wasn't going to God. So God came to him through the prophet Nathan. And here's was King David's response in verse 13 in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After all that, David responded to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. So there we see God exposes David's sin to the prophet Nathan. Nathan woke him up. Nathan realized the sin that he was in and the unconfessed life that he was living in this sin. David thought he was good, but yet he was dying inside for a year. And yet he would not confess that to the Lord. Again, that's what sin does. Sin blinds us, sin makes us forget the greatness of who God is. And the process of sin is, man, that, that it's a thought that's planted in our mind that forms into an idea, to a plan that we're so fixed on that when we do it, it makes us fall deeper, deeper into sin. And here, David, for a year, was in pain because he knew of the unconfessed sin. But what was crazy is that he did not go before the Lord even that whole year. The way that God woke him up was through Nathan. And yet we see that David owns, owns up to his sin and confesses to the Lord. Psalms 51. Psalms 51, we all know that's the, the chapter that David's that's prayer, his prayer of confession, his prayer for forgiveness to the Lord. And there's a few verses of that chapter I love. In Psalms 50, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3. David cries out and says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am con- conscious of my rebellion. Psalm 51, 10 through 11, God created me a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, 16 to 17, he says, You do not want sacrifice, so I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleased to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. And Psalm 51 is the perfect example of how to pray to God for forgiveness. And yet, 
It took Nathan, that God used Nathan to expose that sin in David's life. But here's the beauty of the gospel. That David is crying out to God. God, he's crying out to God, asking to cleanse him. But he knows this sin that he just committed is a deep one, is a dark one. And he knows that he cannot pay this debt. You see, David, just like us, deserves death because of their sins. But this is the beauty of what we're celebrating this weekend, of Good Friday. That yet, while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, God loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, fully man, fully God, came into this earth and died on the cross for our sins. He died and took, absorbed our sins on the cross and absorbed God's wrath as well with it. You see, when we look at the cross, when we look at the cross, that is a picture of God's promise. It's a picture of God's promise that there's no sin, there's no heart so wicked that cannot be forgiven. That every time we see the cross or hear about the gospel, hear about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, that's a promise of God to say, hey, doesn't matter what you've done, I'm willing to forgive you. And we see that God forgives David because in verse, it goes on in verse 13, it says, then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. However, because you treat the Lord with such contentment in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Now here's the thing. We are forgiven of our sins when we confess that to the Lord, but there are consequences. There are consequences because of our action, because of our sins. And that is what God is trying to guard us, right? Again, this is what a lot of people say, man, God has so many rules. But the reason this is because he's protecting us from destroying ourselves and those around us. And we see here that David falls into sin, but man, he comes before the Lord. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful passage, a beautiful chapter of someone who is repentant of their sin. And repentance means to change their mind, to change their behavior, that David realized, he realizes what he has done and comes before the Lord with a broken heart you see the gospel also, we see that, the res- that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day, but also that resurrection, that resurrection Sunday that we celebrate is a promise that there's no, no situation so dead that he cannot renew and restore. Because of Christ rising again from the dead, victoriously defeating death, man, there's nothing that God can't do but also that we are forgiven and have hope only in Christ. And so if you're here tonight and you're like, man, I'm like David for that year who is hiding sin, who I have unconfessed sin, I encourage you tonight, man, just confess that to the Lord. Just as, as David said, he said, cleanse me, break me. And maybe here tonight, you've never placed your trust as Jesus as your savior. Maybe tonight will be that night to say, Jesus, I trust in you. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and you confess in your mouth, you will be saved and be forgiven of your sin and be a child of God. And only Christ can bring you true forgiveness and cleanse your heart and cleanse your life. So we see that David is restored. But again, there's consequences. 
that we see. Nathan says, hey, God's not gonna kill you, he's gonna forgive you. But there's consequences because of the sin that you fell in. The sin that you thought of, that you planned of, and that sin that you acted on, there's consequences. We see that the child of him, Bathsheba, conceived, died. But also, if you look at David's family, man, it, it gets crazier. It's like, should be like it's one of those TV programs that you see about crazy families. Like David's family will be on there. Like the TLC channel will be all up on this family. Like we want you on there because it's crazy. We see that one of his sons rapes his own daughter. We see sons killing sons. We see sons want to kill David to be king. All this crazy mess because it started with this sin that he should have been at battle. But he was disengaged with his purpose, was bored, was on top, of the, on top of his roof because he was just bored and saw sin and fell into sin. And so that's why we've got to be careful, being careful and understanding what our purpose is. But when we're tempted to run away from it, to flee from as far as you can, because that's the progression of sin and falling into sin is, again, a thought that comes into our mind that forms into a plan or idea or a a desire to say, man, I want to live this out. And when we do, we fall into sin and even goes deeper and deeper into our sin. So the question is, is how can we be restored to the Lord? As we saw David, right, he falls into sin, tries to cover up his sin. But then God exposes his sin, his unconfessed sin, after a year of living in this sin. And, man, David is just not living right. He's just in agony. And finally, after a year, God speaks him through the prophet Nathan and confesses his sin to the Lord. But how can we be restored by the Lord? Five steps here to kind of, a lot of it's from the book that that we're reading and as well, a lot of it's from my life, what I've learned. The first one is this, the Holy Spirit's conviction. The Holy Spirit's conviction. In John 16, 7 through 9, we see Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit to the disciples and he says this, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is your benefit that I go away because if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will, con- he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, judgment, and about sin because they do not believe in me. That is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts us of our sin. I, was, uh, I had a, a college student call me one day and he's like, hey, like, Pastor Steve, I want to know more about baptism and I want to know, make sure I'm saved as well. I was like, okay, yeah, we got together. This restaurant, I got together. I never met him before. Uh, but he's a college student. I think he's going to Kent University. And, he, and I was like, man, you know, what's going on? He's like, man, like, I know I trust in Jesus. Like, I, I place my trust in Jesus that he died on the, on the cross for my sins. I do believe he rose again, that he's the only way to be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with God. I've done that, but I keep sinning. And he's like, am I saved? And I looked at him and I said, here's the thing, man. By you calling me, and, and he kind of confessed one of the sins that was kind of lingering in his life. And I said, by you calling me, and you tell me about this sin, to me that gives evidence, man, that you're listening to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit goes in those who have placed their trust in Jesus. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does, it convicts. Look at David, he was so in agony. His bones even hurt, he says. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, it convicts us, it convicts us of the sin, the unconfessed sin in our lives. But here's the thing, we must act on that. We shouldn't be like David and for a whole year, keep it to ourselves. You see, the second thing is this, 
that when we're convicted, uh, convicted of, uh, by the Holy Spirit of that sin, we must repent the sin by name. Repent to the Lord. When you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, repent to that sin to the Lord by name. I had someone who, one of my this older gentlemen was my discipler. He would disciple me. We would just talk about sin because I was confessing sin to him, things I was struggling with. And he said, Steve, you know what you need to do? He's like, when you, he's like, let me ask you a question. When you ask for forgiveness, how do you pray? I said, oh, Lord, just forgive me in my prayer. He's like, no. He said, say, when you say, Lord, forgive me in my prayers, you're actually putting everything under the rug like, ah. He said, but if you say it by name, how embarrassing would that be? To go before the throne of God and say, God, forgive me for blah, 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 blah. Like that should embarrass us and humble us to not want to do that sin again. And we see here in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, Paul is talking to the church of Corinth. He says, for even if I grieve you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice because you were grieved. But because you grieve, because your grief led to repentance. And so you feel, the, if you feel the Holy Spirit, man, if you are, cannot sleep at night because, man, of this unconfessed sin in your life, that's the Holy Spirit telling you, hey, confess it to the Lord by name and ask for forgiveness to the Lord. Third is this. And we talk about, yes, God's willing to forgive us of our sin. He forgives when we confess, when we genuinely repent of our sin. But also, like I said, there's consequences, though, of our sins, right? Because of our mistakes. And most of us here tonight can say, yeah, because of this choice, this was the result. This was the consequences. But here's the thing. My question for you is what do you do with that consequence? You see, I believe that we must learn from the consequences of sin, that the, the resolve, the choice that we did, that we should learn from our mistakes. You see, as believers, we're going to make mistakes. But I believe as believers, we shouldn't make the same mistakes over and over again. If we genuinely ask the Lord to forgive us, then we should look at that and say, okay, what made me sin? What made me fall? And I, and I kind of wonder if that's what David's mind was going through after all of this. Saying, what made me get to this point? And what was that? He was, in the, he was not where he's supposed to be. He was not doing what he's supposed to be doing. But we must learn from our consequences. Proverbs 20, 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so also a fool repeats his foolishness. We must learn from our mistakes. We must learn even from our consequences. I remember when my dad... I wasn't a smart, I didn't take school seriously. I don't know if I was smart, but I didn't take school seriously. And there was, that was a big, man, rift between my parents because being, being uh, a son of an Im- immigrant, man, school was like, you got to go to school. You got to do good. You got to live a better life, you know, all this stuff. And so that was a big rift with my parents. And I remember I got a bad report card. And I remember my dad walked in. He showed me the report card, bad grades. And he says, what are you going to learn from this? And I was like, I got to study. Then he's like, then do it. And he walked out. I was like, man, dad, you're so good. And, and that was true. Like he always, everything and mistake I did, I always say a face that comes with but he always asked me, what are you going to learn from this? When he disciplined me, he said, hey, what you, are you going to learn from this? Learning from our mistakes. Number four is this, spend time with the Lord. Be in his word. Hunger for his word. David for a year was 
pushing God away, pulling himself away from God because of that unconfessed sin. But God had to come to him through Nathan, the prophet Nathan. But we must be in God's word daily. We should hunger to know God more because the more we'll know God's word, the more we'll know how he wants to use our lives for his glory. But 2 Timothy 3.16, the familiar verse, it says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in Righteousness. This book is not just a book of words, but it's God's breath breathing out for us so we can know him more, but also how he wants us to live. The book of James, James says that the, the word of God is like a mirror that reflects the things that we need to work on. And I love it here. Paul says that the word of God is profitable for teaching, for us to teach others. It's also for reproof and for correction, for correction as well for training in righteousness. Now, nowhere in the Bible it says that we got to be in God's word every single day. But my question for you tonight is this, is this the only night that you open up God's word? If this is the only night you open God's word, I encourage you to find more time to know the Lord more. Like if I just spend one day for one hour talking to my wife, I would not be married, Right? Those are, and those are married, so amen, right? Okay, all right. That we need to talk to our wives more, right? Friendship, right? All our friendship, it's not just we talk to, talk to them for one hour once a week. It's because we spend time with them. We go hang out with them, fishing, hunting, go watching sports games. We spend time to get to know somebody. And that's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. It's making time to spend in God's word outside of, a, of ABF or your home group or even men's studies, say, you know, I want to spend time with God, that our desire for these studies is just to give you a little taste of how, God, how great God is so that, man, throughout your week, you're spending time in God's word. Lastly is this, to have accountability in your life. To have an accountability in your life. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says, two are better than one, because they have good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift them up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. You see, we all need a Nathan in our lives. Now, at times we get mad at Nathan because he calls out what's going on in our lives, but we all need a Nathan in our lives. I remember, uh, besides my dad, but one of the first guys that discipled me, uh, we call him Papa Ricky. He was a missionary for 12, uh, 20 years in Spain. Uh, when, but I was in Bible college, he was my soccer coach. And he was this man, he was a guy everybody wanted to hang out with. He was 67 at the time. And I remember saying, I was 21. And I remember praying, saying, I want someone to teach me how just to live how God wants me to live. I want to know his word and I want to share to others. So I remember one day after soccer practice, like, you know what, I'm going to ask Papa Ricky. So I said, hey, coach. He said, what's going on? He said, hey, can you disciple me? And he said, well, yeah. He said, meet me in my house tomorrow. I was like, well, I don't know about tomorrow. Like, let's pray about it. You know, like, no, 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 let's go. He's like, let's go tomorrow, my house. I was like, my wife will cook for us. And we'll go. I was like, okay. He said, hey, he's like, bring two other friends as well. I was like, okay. So I brought two other my friends as well. We went to Papa Ricky's house every Thursday night. It was good because of college students, there was food. His wife would cook for us. And we would study the book of 1 Timothy. And remember, we went verse by verse. And it was awesome. Here's Papa Ricky, 67 years old. And he was pouring into 20-year-old guys' lives. But I remember there was a, just a sin in my life 
that I wasn't sharing. And after our meeting, he's like, hey, Steve, can you stay afterwards? He's like, I need, I need to share something with you. He's like, oh, cool. I thought it was more food or something like that. Like, so everybody left. And he said, hey, what's really going on in your life? I was like, man. I was like, how'd you know about reason? Man, come on. He's like, I live life. I know. I know. We sat down on his couch, kind of confessed some things that I was keeping inside that I was not confessing. And, man, it, it was one of those moments I would never forget in his couch where both were crying. And he brings out 2 Timothy 3.16 and, and talks about even David and Bathsheba and all this stuff. And he's like, hey, God's willing to forgive you, but you've got to confess first. You got to come before. And it, if it wasn't for Papa Ricky being in my name, I don't know where I would be today. And understanding how to love God's word, how to read God's word, but as well, how to teach others, how to share the gospel to other people and help believers grow in their faith. You see, I see a lot of men wiser of age in this room. And my question for you, for those maybe you're re- retired or close to retire, is this, are you a Nathan to somebody? You see, there's a lot of younger guys like me. I think I'm still young, 37. So younger that, man, we need a Nathan in our lives to teach us, man, how God wants us to live, to teach us God's word, but also to make smart decisions in life. You wiser men out there, you have experienced life, even made mistakes as well, and hopefully you've learned from those mistakes. But what God wants you to do is to teach us Davids, us young guys, so that we don't make the same mistake. You see, that's what Paul gave Titus, uh, a strategy for the church of discipleship. He said, hey, get the older men to teach the younger men. And some of you older men have been going to Bible study for like 20,000 Bible studies. But when's the last time you say, you know what, I'm going to get three or four young guys and I'm going to invite them to my house. I'm going to teach them God's word and I'm going to tell them how to make wise decisions and learning from me. Because that's what discipleship is. And to some of you here, older men, I challenge you to start praying. Say, God, who is that you want me to pour into? What young men do you want me to pour into? Because like Nathan came and exposed David's sin to make wise decisions. Man, we young guys need some older men in our lives to teach us so we don't make dumb mistakes as a child of God and just personal decisions as well. But we all need accountability. And you young guys, do you have accountability? We young guys think we know everything, right? We all, we know everything. But in reality, we don't. We need someone older in their lives teaching us God's word, how God wants us to live, how, so we can grow, but also so we can make wise decisions and teach others to not do the same as well. So I challenge you, older men, start praying. Say, God, who can I be a Nathan to, to help grow, to help them be accountable, to make wise decisions? And you younger guys, start praying and say, God, send me. Who who is that Nathan in my life that I need to teach me your word, to make wise decisions so when I grow older, I can teach someone else as well? Because that's the purpose of why we gather here. We gather here to know more about God's word, not just to keep to ourselves, but to teach someone else as well. And so finally, the main principle that I want us to get, and this is found in the book, How God Makes Men, is this. God makes men by doing whatever it takes to correct and restore us when we go astray. I'm gonna read it again. God makes men by doing whatever it takes to correct. All right, we see that with the life of David. And to restore us when we go astray. I love that last part. That not only does God correct us, but he wants to restore us. 
but we need to confess that sin. So I wanna challenge you guys here tonight, before I pray and close and we leave, I want us just to pray in our tables, maybe two people, any volunteer in those tables, but I want you guys to pray. Maybe if you want to confess any sins to each other, you can, but afterwards as well, there's a, I'll be here, so other pastors will be here, other men that would want to pray with you. But before I close in the prayer, I want you guys to pray with your table and pray that we will be men that will, not, will be engaged in our purpose to know God, to know his word, to confess any sin in our lives, but as well to make God known with our lives. Let's take some time and pray with your table there. Tonight, Lord, we thank you for the reminder of, Lord, that you do whatever it takes to correct and restore us when we go away from you. But God, I pray if there's someone here tonight who is in total rebellion towards you, who has some unconfessed sin, God, I pray that before they even leave this place that they will be like David in Psalms 51 and just, man, confess that to you that they would ask for help for others, how they cannot fall into sin. But I pray as well, maybe there's someone here tonight, Lord, that is tempted to sin, that that temptation is waiting for them outside of this building, wherever they're going. But God, I pray that they will flee from it, Lord, that they will not just roam around the top of the rooftop, but God, that they will run away and engage in their purpose of what you have for them. And God, help us, help us as men to step up. Help us to remember our purpose is to know you, to love you, to understand who you are and grow in our relationship with you. But as well, help us understand that you don't want to just keep this knowledge of you to ourselves, that you want us to share to people who don't know you and to believers so they can grow in knowing who you are. But God, help us to be engaged in that purpose. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us, you never push us away, but even that when we sin, you, you forgive us. And God, I pray that we will learn from our mistakes, that our mistakes will bring you, that we learn from it and bring you honor through that as well. But God, I pray you be with these men and Lord, help us, help us with your Holy Spirit to make choices that honor you daily. We love you, Lord, and we pray, amen.